Yeah, let's talk some Lady Eve. This is exciting stuff. This is such a great, great movie. I was telling John, like, I just love this movie so damn much. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I think I'm always like loathe when people ask like, what's your favorite movie? Or like, what's your five favorite movies to like commit to anything? But Lady Eve is always in the top five for me. That's great. Like always, always, always. I think the only, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Lady Eve are like the only two <laughs> that are like my, my like definite top fives that it would be really hard for me to like, well, what come up with something else I'd want in there. And it was great to have an excuse to watch it again. I know we sort of just like threw this at you and then turn around and do it. Uh, but it's not a problem. I, I, I loved it. I listened to the commentary on the drive to work. I went through all the extras again on the Blu-ray and I mean, it's just, it's such a joy. I figure you probably would be okay since I'm not asking you to watch 20 movies to talk about. <laughs> sure. Like yeah. Last no, time. <laughs> yes. No, no. Yeah, no, it was totally fine. And again, it's a movie I could have not watched and still done it, but yeah. because, because I'm like you guys, I'm like an excuse to watch a movie that's great and that I love. Why not? Why wouldn't yeah. I do that? You know? This but again, awesome. thank you guys for staying up late. I'm sorry about the, the timing. <laughs> no, it's okay. As I explained, my anxiety about flying would be keeping me up all night anyway right now. This is a better yes, use of my time than just- we're being productive with it. That's good. Graying my hair out <laughs> in, before your very eyes. <laughs> yeah, and, and I had a tiring day, but then watching the movie, totally revived. Picks you right total, up. Total revived. So I good. believe it. I will say watching the movie and like the heightened emotional stress state I've been in, it was like I I was like laughing out loud and like tearing up. I had this like oh, the most like like the most intense watching experience of it I've ever had watching it again today. And it's uh, and it's good too. You know, we've been talking a, a few times on recent podcasts, especially the the Bogdanovich one we just did with Bill Tech about like wearing out movies and worrying about wearing them out. Like you've seen them too many times and they don't work on you anymore. And then sometimes they they come back. Uh, it's actually- The episode we were, started because I want you to say this stuff on the episode. We're so saying we'll the episode has started, John. When oh, he says, let's talk about some Lady Eve. That's exactly yeah, can, what you we can did. Introduce us, you can introduce me now and now, do whatever you want to do. Now <laughs> it's time to officially start, John. You're in charge. Okay. <laughs> I'm down. Let's do it. All right. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast with John Cribbs, Chris Funderburg, co-host, uh, co-creators of the PinkSmoke.com and co-host of the podcast. Uh, we're very honored here to be uh, joined by our very first guest ever on the podcast. You were the first one, Brian. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. I totally back forgot. We talked that's about amazing. Joe Dante character actors and, uh, you know, we, we're back here talking about something that we love. So it's always great to have you on. Fantastic. I love it. And thank you so much for asking me. This is a great topic. And I know we're all excited about this because it's just a really damn good movie. Very yeah. excited. The, I, you guys, you guys can pretend like we haven't been talking about it, but I'm leaving that front part on the episode. <laughs> it's going to be on there. I'm just warning you in advance. That's great. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm so happy because, yeah, Sturges is a guy that has been with me for a long time. And I love coming back to him and being reminded of his greatness because he's truly yeah. one of the great writer directors ever. And actually, one of the Bogdanovich is pointing out in the extras, like one of the first writer directors to really break through. And, and that's even more satisfying on some level. Yeah, the first one of the first writers to break through as a director. As a director and yeah, writer, which yeah. kind of started a, a trend at the time. It's just terrific. And of course, Billy Wilder and you know, everyone kind of followed suit. So that's great. 
And I'm just trying to say this is Brian Sauer who's joining us. So sorry. <laughs> the creator of uh, the creator of Rupert Pumpkin Speaks, the creator and co-host of Pure Cinema Podcast and host of Just a Disc Podcast and the uh, YouTube channel, which is so amazingly prolific that I can't believe that you do like two or three of those a week. I don't know how you keep up. But so thank, thank you. you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about this great movie with us. My absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's been too long. We were just discussing the last thing we did uh, with you. And I think it was The Mangler when we yes. were on talking about The Mangler. Yeah, uh, I recommend people go back and listen to the Justice episode of The Mangler. That was that's one of my favorites we've done. You know, even as a movie that you guys I know like more than me, you it was a great exercise in appreciation and me being like, wow, you guys are making me like this movie. And I didn't dislike the movie, but I know I wasn't on the level that you guys were at. And it was a great we're, conversation. We are aware of how people feel about that movie. We're <laughs> right? aware. You but were... you converted me in a way. I was like, there's a lot, they ma they're making some great point. And of all the people to talk to you about Toby Hooper, I, I think I said on the episode, like you guys were the perfect, you're, you're rabid fans. And it was just the best for me to be involved in that chat. Cool. That was a really terrific conversation. So, um, but one of the reasons we want to have you on here is because I remember, I mean, I know you're a big Sturgis fan, of course, but specifically on an episode of Pure Cinema, I remember you guys were talking about uh, the great uh, streaks for certain directors, like directors who had great runs. And you said, you said exactly what, what I think. Anytime I think about a great run of a director, it's Preston Sturgis in the 40s. I mean, from Great McGinty all the way to Unfaithfully Yours. I mean, just just each one fantastic i mean there's not a bad one Re there. really you're including uh mad wednesday sin of Her sin of harold diddlebach well, that's after that's after that's 47 that's 47 okay. and uh, right. well the street the street gets at some point but we're talking at least <laughs> six or seven great films in a row i mean masterpieces in a row um i thought of faithfully yours as part of it but we'll just lump it in i guess it's it's 48 i mean it's all I think it's fine. I think I'm just busting your chops a little too hard. <laughs> and I think, and I think I, and I think I would also include, I think it's fair to include like remember the night in that street yes, as well. The Mitchell uh, and stuff, easy yeah. living too. I yeah, think that he easy wrote great. I think is, I think is very much a piece of it. I had just by coincidence watched remember the night recently. And so watching lady even remember the night in close proximity to each other, uh, obviously, cause they're, they're both uh, Barbara Stanwyck. It's very, uh, striking how similar they are and how really Sturgisy remember the night is but also how much he brings to it as a director and and a filmmaker with lady eve has sort of how there's a a jump up in the and uh, i don't want to say quality i don't want to in any way disparage remember the night which is a fantastic film but there's definitely a a jump in sturgisness with Lady from Remember the Night that I think is really uh, striking. I also love Remember the Night as like a, a alternate universe, you know, beginnings for, for McMurray and, and Barbara Stanway before, it's before Double Indemnity, right? I'm pretty sure. I think it's like two years before Double Indemnity. Yeah, so you like, you get to see them in a totally different alternate universe that's not so dark. <laughs> and then you yeah. see Double Indemnity and I'm like, so everybody loves Double Indemnity, but go back and watch Remember the Night, see them in there and see, a different take on the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also it's also obviously with Lady Eve, she's a very similar sort of character in Remember the Night. She's sort of a con woman and uh, uh, somebody who's trying to manipulate a, a much more respectable man around her, although much more of a, a kind of naive and overtly 
straight ahead um, good person and remember the night in some ways. I guess it's sort of she has a hard shell with a with the the good heart underneath of it in a, in a much more standard way in remember the night where it's sort of you can read her as somebody who's tough because the world has been tough to her as opposed to Lady Eve where it's a much more complicated and complex character and I think also a much more interesting performance. One of the things that I love about Lady Eve is just top to bottom. Every performance is a comedic masterpiece in it. But I think Barbara Stanwyck gives one of the handful of the greatest performances of all time in it. It's just, she's so phenomenally good in this movie and just has so many different moves and so many different just tools in her tool set in it. And she she's just, it's so good. She just finds amazingly funny stuff in every line too and serious stuff and emotional stuff in it um yeah, just the way Sturgis sets up the camera just to have her in the center of the frame all the time i mean the movie is her i mean everything yeah. that everything that happens everything anyone else says is we get her reaction and we get her dialogue she literally owns this movie from the beginning to the end and well, he and- Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and he gives her a lot of space to react and think. She has a lot of great little faces that are her like smiling as she's planning her next move or like playing innocent. You know, she gives, she's given a lot of time to when she doesn't have dialogue where the camera is on her, which is which she makes great use of. Well, and coming back down to your idea about her controlling the film in a way, I mean, I there's a, there's a few little set pieces in it that I, I mean, all of it's great, but that opening bit with her in the mirror doing the thing yeah. where she's literally narrating and yeah. like, she is, you know, our, our voice into the movie and it, it's just an amazing sequence. And then the set and you're just like, where's this going? And, and how she ends up, you know, hooking him after all these people have failed. It's just like, they never, this guy never had a chance. There was no way she's yeah. so in control. Um, but yeah, then she has her own little camera, the mirror, and then she's narrating everything. She basically yeah. becomes Sturgis in that moment. It's you know? true. It's true. But but then it's so funny because she's so in control. And like you said, Chris, it's like she sort of starts to lose control. And that's where you get some of that emotional stuff that you almost kind of don't expect from the beginning. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't expect some of those emotional moments that actually really hit you, you know, like the the photograph, you know, that kind of thing, like. That's yeah. a real moment that gets me every time, you know? Yeah. I always I know thought it going. was a rotten likeness. I always <laughs> exactly. hated that photo. But I, that's the only thing about Stur- I mean, there, I have a whole list of things I love about Sturges that I can go through whenever you guys want. But um, one of them is that he gives moments to everybody. And, and yeah. he has just this incredible, you were talking about a toolbox, incredible toolbox of character actors that he just thrusts in there. And they are all aces, every one of them. Fantastic. I mean, Amazing. yeah, any, you can pick any of them this time watching it just, and I know he's great. It's not like it caught me off guard, but Eugene Pallet as, um, <laughs> as, as the elder Pike, just this time, it's like, it's so fucking amazing. And it's great too. It's very good directing and writing. He's introduced late in the film. I think we don't see him until like 40, 45 minutes in the film, but he's introduced singing, you know, for tonight will marry, marry me. <laughs> right. And in, and in 10 seconds, he's a main character and it doesn't matter that you haven't seen him before that moment. He has like a weight and a gravity to him. It's a funny performance. He's, he's just so quickly given importance and interest and humor that it doesn't matter that 
oh, this is really late introduction of an important character. How much are you going to be able to care about him and his relationships? He just knows how to get around it. It's very, very deft. And it's not the writing. It's the directing in that moment. John, before we get too deep into it, would you like to take us through the plot of this for listeners who have not ever heard of the Lady Eve before this moment? They're just listening because they're big John Cribbs fans. Who made the decision to listen to a podcast about a movie before watching it? Sure. <laughs> um, so the first half of this picture takes place aboard the SS Southern Queen between South and North America, on which Charles Ponsford Pike, a.k.a. Hopsy, is returning from being up the Amazon for a year along with Emma, a rare... <laughs> Quetlacus Colbrius, a snake. And he's got no time for ladies. He's nothing but reptiles until he's targeted by high ruling card sharks, handsome Harry and his daughter, Eugenia Harrington, Jean Harrington, who has the damnedest way of bumping a fellow down and bringing him up again. So despite Only to the bring fact him that, down again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And despite the fact that she completely dominates him, she can't help falling for the poor sap. But his watchdog, Muggsy, uncovers the truth. And he calls it off with her. So that's the first half of the film. And then we get into Bridgefield, Connecticut, the Pike House, where she reappears as the Lady Eve Sidwick. And she is positively the same day. (laughs) He's so cockeyed that he doesn't realize it. And she completely swindles him again to get revenge. Or is it revenge? I mean, when Brian was talking about her vulnerability, that's like my favorite moment where after he, she has just aced it, like completely won him over and humiliated him and gotten her revenge that's when she realizes what did i do this for what did i want why did i want to do this is there actually a different motive that even she didn't realize you know it's just god there's so many great vulnerable moments for her and she's so good she's yeah. so fantastic yeah when she's on the phone talking to uh to the elder pike and well i was just gonna say coming back to eugene Paulette because he starts he's got that singing moment and then we get a there's a joke where he can't get his breakfast and we see him banging pots he's very <laughs> it's sort of big and clownish in a way yeah. and so you're like okay this guy's gonna be sort of comic relief whatever but he has one of my favorite dramatic moments when he's on the phone with her later and just saying you know she won't do it. And he really is rooting for her. You can tell he's like, I wish I could get the kid to do this, but uh, I can't. And it's it's such a great moment. And you can't believe the guy banging pans and pots at the early part of the movie <laughs> is the same guy that you're suddenly like, this is my favorite character in the movie at this moment. You know what yeah. I mean? Crazy. Especially since Pike, since Henry Fonda has like kind of built him up as, you know, sort of this overbearing ale baron, you know, you kind of get this picture of him as being you Pike's know, kind of like a buddy. Pike's the pale that won for Yale. Tell yeah, him to not, go to Harvard. <laughs> favorite joke. Not, I love that not joke. Being the, not being the guy. I was going to ask about who, who's, who, uh, what everyone's favorite line of joke was. <laughs> but uh, when uh, he, he, he's introduced to answering the phone and saying, like, who's having the party? We are? Oh, well, what time is it? You know, like, you just appreciate that he's this real down-to-earth kind of guy who just wants to get up and have his breakfast and doesn't really care about the whole society <laughs> thing. Also, the way he says, uh, it's something like, oh, what a nut house. This place is a nut house. It's so <laughs> dad. It's so like dad on Sunday morning being unconnected from everything else that's going on and just trying to, to get through the morning. It's a very, it's a, it's very, again, it's just a very charming performance. Oh, this movie is just top to bottom charming performances. Let's, well, let's go into it. What's your favorite line in this movie, John? Or Brian? Besides, you know, favorite, I mean, there's so many fantastic, great lines. I mean, obviously <laughs> you're, you're a strange kind of gal for a guy to be who's been up the Amazon for a year. Good thing it wasn't too. I mean, there are just so many classic lines. I was looking this time specifically for underrated lines that I maybe not noticed. Before. Yes, uh, I and, did too. And I, yeah, I got one, but gone. The two that I came down uh, with was 
the fish was a poem <laughs> next to him when he missed Neil. And then uh, the great little bit at the end before their final, you know, before Muggsy's final, positively the same day, and is, uh, are you sure we're on the right boat, Sylvester? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got a favorite line. I got a favorite line. Uh, yeah. uh, I need him like the axe needs the turkey. How can you Oh, my That's God. It's so good. All-time classic. Love it. Like John, this time I noticed a line that I felt was really underrated that every time I hear it, it cracks me up where they're talking about what their ideals are. And he goes, I've got an ideal. Do you know what it is? And she goes, Marguerite and Faust, which is so <laughs> fucking funny that because if you know, Faust, I missed Mar that completely. Marguerite is, is the character who goes insane, killing her kid and is in prison in an insane asylum. And Faust is still in 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 love with her right and she's traditionally played by a big you know hefty opera singer so henry fonda's reaction to it too of like uh no i'd like someone less and i think she says operatic than that and but it's it's a fucking marguerite and faust it's just oh, the way great. like he she cuts off her his his like trying to be romantic with this ridiculous line but her whole thing about like why should i marry someone like that you know no when i find when she's describing like someone short and bald that you can find in any barbershop and he said and you want to marry someone like that and she goes no why would i want to marry anyone like that uh just her whole if the kind of sneak up on you like a burglar <laughs> like a burglar <laughs> oh my god it's amazing. Henry Fonda is amazing in this movie too. Oh but that first God. scene in the stateroom, every single line in that stateroom where she's hugging him uh, after she's afraid of the snake, um, it's just absolutely perfect. Every every single line is brilliant. Every single delivery and performance is brilliant. And so it's, sexy. That scene is goddamn sexy. It's so, so sexy. It's unbelievable. There's no way you could resist her. There's no way anybody could resist her. Same thing when she's first introduced in that gown, the Edith Head gown as Eve Sedgwick at the at the party and she she's got the fan and she just looks phenomenal. It's just like nobody has looked better or more appealing or more interesting than Barbara Stanwyck in that moment. And you kind of, you can go with the story of like, okay, he's convinced. How could you, how could you not convince yourself to fall in love with that woman? Even if she had already ripped you off and broken your heart, <laughs> you'd still be like, well, maybe it's somebody else right in that moment. You just would be. It's it's irresistible. And that's that's what's so difficult about this role as well, is that she has to have a movie star, megawatt, charisma, irresistibility to her. She has to be the sexiest, funniest, most charming woman there ever was. That is what is called for. And she does it. She is all of those things on top of being incredibly funny and incredibly emotionally perceptive and sensitive and diabolical and scheming and uh, one step ahead of everybody and hard to pin down. It's, it's just, it asks her to do so much and she does it all. And it's, it's just incredible in that way. Absolutely, man. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I was thinking about that moment you were talking, well, just the idea of, not recognizing her. And then re in one of the features on the Criterion Blu-ray, which is highly recommended, by the way, um, there's something about Sturges saying that he had that experience of meeting a woman that he 
once was in love with, uh, like an ex, came to his house. He flat out didn't recognize her. And he has this theory that I think makes sense in that you people look different to you when you're in love with them. They, yeah, you, they just yes. have a different air and they bring it up in the movie, but I think it's absolutely true. And it's, it's not really quantifiable in a way that people can recognize, but I think there is something to that. Absolutely. Uh, it's a it's really also, sad kind of thought, but it's, yeah, totally. it's absolutely true too. Yeah. It's going yeah. to be impossible for me to not constantly quote. Cause when you're talking about when she's introduced to him again, and she's trying to remember where he's from and she says, it was at a dance hall. You asked me to dance. You had a tiny mustache. <laughs> Just that line is like completely amazing. And again, Eugene Pallet in that moment where he's like super embarrassed, like what is wrong with my idiot son <laughs> with like genuine concern, like, like what, like you want to get your act together, boy, you know, that kind of attitude or just, are you feeling okay? You know, is, is that, just his like bouncing between her and him is amazing. The entire sequence in Bridgefield, starting with, you know, the preparation for the party and then the party itself. It's just this, oh my God, it's a solid 20 minutes of nothing but laughter and, and funny stuff. Eric Bloor playing Sir Alfred, oh. you know, his whole bit. That coachman <laughs> in both instances, need I say more? Do you want oh to bring the God. walls tumbling down with Pat Arias? Silence to the grave and beyond. <laughs> Eric Bloor, I mean, like, let's just go down the list for a second here. Like, Eric Bloor is yes. definitely one of the best oh of, of his oeuvre that he's got. But, like, you talk about Bill Demarest. I mean, oh it's obvious, God. but holy shit. Bill Demarest in this movie, in fucking credible. Ambrose just... Murgatroyd. Oh, that's the other thing. <laughs> names, character names. I have this on my list of things. Sturges and W.C. Fields. They both love weird, weird names. But yeah, Sturges' names are like Murgatroyd, Hackensacker, Bill Docker, <laughs> Hellflinger. Uh, you know, they're just all these crazy. And it's usually not a ton Ratsky, of them. Ratsky, usually... Watsky. <laughs> Ignatz Ratsky, Watsky. But that's a made up name, John, when he can't come up with a name. <laughs> i just love i love people who have fun with names you know it's just it's just always enjoyable to me it's like having fun with language and and he's just obviously so fond of it and he's he wields language and dialogue like almost nobody else i mean the idea that he doesn't type it he dictates it and it's it's born in his mouth like you can feel that you can feel that's part of the reason it's so good it's just coming straight out of him you know no no filter through the fingers into a type typewriter no filter to a pencil. It's just out of his mouth into the character's mouth, you know? It's amazing. Yeah, Bill Demarest, Charles Coburn, obviously, his handsome Harry is terrific. Robert Grieg is the butler who doesn't have many lines, but just has one of the best double takes in history when <laughs> Demarest comes out with the tray and just sees him and just, like, you know, seems so shocked. It's just, Are you going to throw that rough neck time. out or should I? With pleasure, <laughs> sir. Enthusiasm. With enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, he's so good. And I just think of Animal Crackers when I think of him. So I think of the Marx Brothers, which is great. That's right. That's right. But William Demarest, as as uh, my father took him off a truck when I was a kid, um, as as uh, how is he? He's 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 Pike's right hand man. He's he's Henry Fonda's right hand man and sort of looker outer for and and terrible valet, uh, who is just he's so unbelievably funny. It's just such an unbelievably funny element where everybody else is sort of like genteel or pretending to be urbane and cosmopolitan. He's the only person in this entire movie other than, uh, than uh, Eugene Pallet, who's very rough around the edges and gruff. So to have that element constantly hanging around the edges, literally 
peeking in the window of scenes in this movie <laughs> is so great because it's just such a destructive force that you know is coming. And it and it's it is a destructive force. He does blow up the romance originally, and he is right. So you can't you can't fault him for anything either. He never becomes an antagonist. You always get a sense that he's good-hearted and likable, you know, even when, you know, he doesn't trust the clergyman that turns out to be a bishop. He's still not sure that <laughs> That's a great joke. He bookends the movie. He has the first funny line. So long, Lula, I'll send you a postcard. And then he gets the very <laughs> last line of the movie, the iconic final line of the movie. Um, positively the same dame. Oh, it's, amazing. It's absolutely amazing film. Uh, was this, was this, this was the first Preston Sturges I saw, I believe. It was either this or Sullivan's Travels. Was this, was this, when we were like, because um, I think we're around the same age, it was like high school era I was seeing these and they were hard oh, nice. to find. They weren't like on VHS. They, it was definitely pre-DVD. And I don't even remember. Yeah. yeah, I don't re even remember where I saw them, but I saw those two. That Sullivan's Travels was the one you were always told to see if you were like a movie person and a cinephile. It was like, go out of your way to see this movie about making movies and the power of movies. I might have rented them the same day and like seen oh. them the same day. But those were the only two I saw for like four years because this stuff was so hard to find. I remember when I finally got a hold of Palm Beach Story and Miracle at Morgan's Creek, I'd like ordered them from like a video catalog and they came like with unofficial boxes like i guess they were like vhs dubs or something but palm beach story like the box was like a yellow sleeve with like the window where you could just see the printed label <laughs> and it took me a long time to see them which which brian which were these early on for you what was your experience of coming to sturges yeah i think i think it was similar you were ahead of me i didn't see him in high school i think i saw him in college when i was starting to really get into movies and i think it was sullivan's first and then lady eve absolutely captivated and Palm Beach was soon after. And for a long time, I would just be like, those are the three. Those are the three essentials. Yeah. But I will say that McGinty has grown on me. And especially um, Christmas in July has become a low-key, oh, like, yeah. all-time favorite. I adore that movie. Adore yes. It. I agree. So Definitely but, most like, underrated from that stretch. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's. I think the title doesn't do it favors for some reason because it sounds like a Christmas movie. And I think some people immediately are like, well, it's not Christmas. I'm not, not going to watch any movie with Christmas in the title that might yeah. be a Christmas movie. And it's not a Christmas movie at all. Um, it's just a really funny, great story. And um, I almost want to give the just a plot synopsis so people know they should watch it. But I almost don't want to spoil it. But um, I'll just do a quick thing with Dick Powell in the movie plays a guy who <clears throat> he works at a, it's like a coffee company or something. They do coffee beans. I don't know. And he's, there's this other coffee company that has a, a campaign to pick their slogan and you get 25 grand, which is actually really a lot of money in 1938. Uh, it's 1940 is Christmas and July. 40, 40. Got it. starts in, in 40. That's right. I forgot Correct. about that. Yeah. Um, and, and there's through a sort of a joke, he thinks he won the contest and things sort of spin out of control from there. And it is. We've got to mention his motto. It's amazing. Uh, his slogan, which is, if you can't get to sleep, it's not the coffee, it's the bunk. <laughs> so good. <laughs> but anyway, that one to me, um, and, and that has a really nice Blu-ray from Kino with a nice commentary from Sam Deegan, by the way, that I recommend. Um, that one has really, really grown on me to the point where like, if I 
wanted to recommend Sturges, I would almost throw that in the mix with those other three. Like, I just really think as an introduction, like you could start with it and it might, it's not quite as good, but it also has a really fun, smaller Bill Demarest role. He's Bill Docker in that one. And he's great. He's the one who refuses to, to um, end the contest because he has such integrity. He's like, he's like some lowly worker at the company. They put him in charge of like picking the, the slogan. And he refuses to step down. He won't, he wants that has that one slogan he loves and he's not going to, he's the, he's the literal Henry Fonda in this, in that movie from 12 Angry Men. He is totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, Sturges for me, I think Lady Eve really cemented it because, um, you know, I saw it before, you know, I, I, before I was married and, and I think, you know, uh, you have notions about romantic love that are so, they really can get you when you're younger in a way that I don't want to say that you get jaded or whatever happens. Like you don't, when you're, in. when you're a teenager and a teenage girl's half an idiot anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. So these ideas like get in your head and you're like, that is the most romantic thing I have literally ever seen. And I still think that about the movie, even in my late, you know, my late forties. But at the time I, I really thought it was a love story to end all love stories. It's, it, it's on top of being incredibly funny, which it is, you know, it's just, ah, I, I can't, I don't know. That one really got me. I love Veronica Lake and Joel McRae in Sullivan's, you know, there's tons of great lines in that movie, incredibly quotable as well. You know, yeah. if they knew what they liked, why would they live in Pittsburgh? You know, all that <laughs> yeah. stuff. But yeah, Lady Eve is is really for me the more perfect. It it is the best one and my favorite. I'm with you. It's it's a top ten kind of thing for me. It's just I don't know, uh, but it absolutely was, got me. Yeah, I think oh, you know, I remember reading this Roger Ebert review of the Hutsucker Proxy, mm. where he said, you know, the Cohen brothers are trying to take a Sturgis character and put him in a Frank Capra world, and his mm. argument was a Sturgis character wouldn't survive in a Frank Capra world. It's too cruel. <laughs> But I no, I I disagree with it. I think that Sturges' movies actually have a really realistic view of the world. They have realistic ideas about like how ambition can fail and how you know uh, the little guy gets toppled over and things and just sort of the sad things like we're talking about when Eve, you know, uh, we're not Eve when Jean uh, gets crushed, you know, and gets heartbroken by Henry Fonda. He understands these sad moments and these characters, you know, are go through the same kind of ringers that a Capra character would go through, I think, you know, maybe not like a, a larger scale of, you know, corrupt government or things like that. But I think that there's still like a definitely there's drama in these films that you can kind of appreciate on top of the effortless comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think he actually has a very Boonwellian mindset about the world, which is that like the world is full of like awful people and liars and injustice and unfairness and total insanity and isn't that charming isn't that great <laughs> like isn't that really interesting the, don't you the, find that really the good girls aren't all that good and the bad girls aren't that bad yeah right. no but there's a kind of like it's not even cynicism uh to Sturges it's like a real affection for every for like ba bad behavior and lies and mistakes and and human failing. It's it's like a real affection for human failing in these movies to a point mm -hmm. where uh, I, I, I don't know, I certainly don't have strong enough opinions on Capra to know whether I agree with that Roger Ebert assessment or not, but it, there is a lack of like darkness to these movies, even as they handle like risque subject matter in a way that I do feel like 
there's a lack of darkness to Boonwell's movies, even as characters end up in, you know, uh, a metaphorical hell at the end of them, you know, <laughs> that it, that there's a kind of just affection for existence and living and, and enthusiasm for human failure that, that renders a lot of the stuff funny and charming. You know, I really think that's true. And I had always heard it's it's interesting you mentioned that ebert review i haven't read it i had always heard of hudsucker proxy which was my favorite movie in high school this is a movie i've watched a hundred times at least uh and have you know pretty well memorized i had always heard it was a capro homage and um when i watched lady eve i was shocked by how much lady eve takes our uh, how much hot sucker proxy takes from lady eve that there's really it's directly indebted Absolutely. to lady eve more than any other movie even the line you mentioned the fish was a poem that lady is in hot sucker proxy the, the two women know that, yeah, that he's sitting do between you know yeah. him it's the exact same character she's like dressed the same has the same voice awesome. and then when um the cabbies are narrating the oh that gag's got whiskers on it you know <laughs> they're they're doing the the same the thing Denver that has. no 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 they're doing dip, dip your whiskers in that when he, when he gets the steak the, uh, the <laughs> yes no but they're doing the scene we talked about where she's narrating in the mirror everybody coming up and oh, trying yeah. to oh, yep, con, yep. on him they're doing that the two casters no adenoids no lombago like they're doing the same narration <laughs> of the trying to meet this guy Romo. And con. yeah Romo trying to uh, to meet him and con him and there's really a lot that's very directly taken from lady eve and that in a way that i was taken aback by uh when i finally saw lady eve having having sort of lived and breathed on soccer proxy for a couple absolutely of years. and the and the eddie bracken films i mean hail the conquering hero is yeah. obviously a big influence on it the idea of the go you, know, you love the phony you know you love the guy who doesn't belong there who you know has no no business at all being there and then kind of reaching a sadness later on or a darkness where it's like the more I'm kind of accepting that I'm, you know, I, that I don't belong here, the more I'm accepting that I'm a phony, you know, that I don't actually have anything to offer the world. And I think that that's something that's, you know, kind of towards the, towards later in the, uh, towards later, uh, later on in Hutsucker Proxy, when it gets a little bit more dark, that's sort of where it kind of comes from, stems from that sort of, that same sort of failure. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I adore Hudsucker Proxy, and still I think it's one of their best movies they've ever done. I don't know that they'll... I wish they'd do another one like that. I mean, they, <laughs> they, do the, they do the comedies and stuff, but that one in particular is so, as you said, like it's got the Sturges, it's got an incredible kineticism to it. I, I think they won't do it again because I think Raimi is the hidden factor in that movie by 100%. having co-written it and directed all of the um, second, second unit stuff. stuff. You can so feel all that. of the montage sequences are directed by him, and I think it has just enough Raimi flavor to make it feel very different from the rest of their work. I don't know if I... I mean, that's a movie I haven't watched in a very long time. I have no idea how I'd feel about it if I went back to it now as somebody who's uh, definitely like... Um, there's no way to phrase it without sounding condescending outgrown the cohen brothers i think the cohen brothers are something that if they're your favorite filmmakers when you're 20 you have great taste if they're your favorite filmmakers when you're 40 you have terrible taste i think that that's i think that that's a fair thing to say yeah, but about. chris that double stitch she lasts forever <laughs> that mr moosebrug is such a nice man i'm gonna give him a double stitch anyway Oh God, that's such a good moment. Just the look on his face when he realizes yeah. he didn't ask for it and then they cut back. Oh my God, that joke is so good. Why Why would oh. I get a double stitch? Had your wallet? 
Oh, I love that movie so much. I want to watch that movie now. I want to um, talk about Henry Fonda a little bit in the way yeah. we can go to that because the scene obviously where the horse is behind them, you know, where he's given her the same line that he gave <laughs> uh, when she it's was Gene Harrington. It's amazing. it's amazing in that scene that he doesn't break. You can actually see Stanwyck kind of like start to like giggle a little bit and he's just got to keep that face the entire time. You just appreciate what a great straight man performance this is and the funniest thing about that scene in the stateroom, you know, as funny and sexy she's being is his reaction, staring forward and just having this lust building up in him that he can't act upon. It's fucking terrific. Oh, I think I can sleep well now. Um, yeah, that scene you mentioned with the horses too, where he's repeating the thing he said to her, that was very romantic and spontaneous feeling when he first said it. And then he's trying to reproduce it. Uh, as somebody who's older, I, I recognize that experience with women when you have had something like you've you said use that something, same line with women. Well, no, when you've said something <laughs> to a woman and in it's here, but you're in the distance. No, when it's like that, that really worked and it's expressed something I really, really felt. And um, that was a really special moment. And then later you sort of like, fumblingly for reasons you don't even understand use that line again and it obviously doesn't work or feel right at all it obviously feels like why did i just do that you know or or you try to paraphrase it in some way because you don't want to use it exactly and it still doesn't work yeah exactly where you where you feel like that was an expression of something i really felt in my heart i really feel something in my heart again let me try and express it the same way and you feel like this ridiculous phony who's trying <laughs> to manufacture a romantic moment i think that you know what it makes me think of now that you're bringing it up like that that you're phrasing like that is the scene in groundhog day where he's on the date with andy mcdowell <laughs> and they have like this kind of cute like they're building a snowman and you like like you know and it's all very sweet and very spontaneous and then he tries to do the exact same thing the next day and it doesn't work you know and he's just fumbling about trying to create that same kind of feeling and it does, you know, it's a complete failure. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly what this is of him trying to reproduce the false image that he had of her. You know, the one where the good girls are really good girls and the bad ones are really bad. He's trying to reproduce that false image, but it's at odds with reality. And I think that this movie, you know, a lot of screwball comedies obviously have a deserving reputation for a kind of proto-feminism and a depiction of women where they're allowed to be flawed characters and have their own sets of desire and give as good as they get. I think that this movie is particularly perceptive about the boxes that men put women into romantically. I mean, especially in that era where there's a whole different set of mores about what's good behavior and what's bad behavior for women, but it still resonates now. It still feels the same way of the ways in which romantic ideals really reduce people. That when you reduce somebody to a romantic ideal of them, you are dehumanizing them in a way. And that he has a very human reaction to her at the beginning. Uh, and then when he does the the second go round with her as Eve, he's reducing her to a romantic ideal that the human didn't live up to. And I think it's very perceptive in that way about its dehumanization. It's it's false. It's completely false. It's a reproduction of the real thing. And he's got to learn what the real thing is. You know, she's got to teach him what the real situation is. Uh, and that's one of the things that's obviously aged incredibly well about this movie. Yeah, and he's and he, he's a really interesting character because he's wrong-headed like 
most of the time. Like yeah. he, he really doesn't know what he's doing. He makes obnoxious statements that are just totally stupid and it fully it, it has conviction of them like he believes that and you kind of go like i don't know eve if this is the dude for you <laughs> i yeah. don't know uh gene if this is the dude for you because he's he's giving some stuff that definitely doesn't play like he <laughs> he really is has I, I think ultimately what what it comes down to is, is the genuine connection that he seems to have to her at certain points when he's not flapping his gums saying something stupid yeah, there is or a genuine... doing card tricks. Oh my god! <laughs> and that moment with with Charles Coburn when he's off camera and he does the shuffle like with the long yeah across his and he, then he kind of puts it back like whoops. Um, and, and I also love when he puts on his glasses and like oh my word, show me again. Like <laughs> that's such a great. Moment. Oh, that's such a great moment. That that card the both card games, but definitely the second card oh. game is also one of, along with the mirror thing, is one of my favorite bits because she's obviously like, you know, I'm not your daughter for free. I'm an, And she shows him later, like, <laughs> all the little tricks that she's throwing him bad cards. and Oh, look and at she... that. I thought for sure one of you had four aces. Every time he fans out the cards and they're different, I crack up. It's oh, it's so great. So funny. And it's so great that you can kind of see him grabbing at the different spot because they show him at one point all the pockets he has in his yeah. vest with all the different hands and stuff. Um, but and it's crazy to me too, like thinking about how he would handle cards so well that he would never, I guess, throw duplicate cards in with the hand of like, he fully controls the hand of the other guy. So you'd yeah. never have a problem where he's dealing with multiple decks and you suddenly mixing, you know, four aces here and two aces from this other deck. He's such an incredible, uh, card Smith that that never happens. It's like a superpower. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's great when he's showing her how he's controlling the aces and she says, tell me my fortune. <laughs> before cutting to the next scene such a sweet like little daughter moment you know like yeah. a father-daughter moment between them that you don't get through most of the movie yeah, yeah. I, I, no a super sweet moment is when he can't be at the wedding and he's on the phone hearing about it and he says did she look beautiful oh, it's yeah. such a sweet beautiful moment oh yeah i love that yeah it's crazy that a movie this funny can have so much poignancy to it so many emotional moments and again, I think that's why it's his best and why it sticks out to me. And I forget about those. I always remember the funny and I forget some of the poignant emotional stuff. Not all of it, but some of it. Like that line you just mentioned, I was like, oh my gosh, that is a beautiful line. Uh, and and Sturges just, just, I don't want to say he sneaks them in there, but he doesn't lean on them ever. It's just, you know, like, I don't want to call out like a, a specific filmmaker leaning on emotional moments but there's a deftness to the way that he handles both the comedy and the emotion. And that he's just, he's so light. He's like Fred Astaire. He's so light footed. He's just yeah. never, almost never touching the ground in the way that he just doles out each one. It's, it's just remarkable to watch. Yeah. We I only think remember the, the, the Dick innuendos and things like that, but <laughs> uh, he always, I think, am I right? Remembering this Chris in his autobiography, he kind of dismissed this one as being just a bunch of pratfalls. And oh, wow. Yes. He thinks there's, he thinks there's too many pratfalls in it, which is, which is funny. Cause there, I think there's nine pratfalls in it. Right. And he, he definitely has an attitude of like, I was leaning too much on the easy jokes with this one, which is like, you're crazy. <laughs> um, absolutely crazy. But he also in that book does, he does come across as a as a bit of a uh, uh, a total lunatic when you hear his <laughs> life story and you hear what he was doing and what he was up to. He's just very 
invested in in the wrong things and it's amazing how quickly he he burns out to how quickly that that run is it's very you know val luton-esque and that you're like i can't believe there's that many classics and that short of a time frame and then he and then he doesn't and then it's over very very quickly you know it's yeah. less than 10 years uh well but donovich who puts it in context in his introduction on the uh, the criterion where he says but you know these six seven movies are such masterpieces you know what would you want him to like spread them out over three decades you know or just have yeah. them to, you know just do them all within this you know the small amount of time does it make a difference no it doesn't make a difference these are this is amazing filmography, no matter how you look at it. John, yeah. do you, oh, sorry, go on, Brian. No, no, go, no, of course. No, I was going to say, John, you must have here in front of you somewhere his nine rules for filmmaking, right? Not directly in front of me. Right? <laughs> can, you pull those, can you pull those up? Because we should read them because sure, they're so good. Sure. Can I read some random quotes from Sturges? Absolutely. Well? Okay, um, I'll go through these quick. Uh, the most incredible thing about my, my, uh, about my career is that I had one. Um, <laughs> The camera must point at the exact spot the audience wishes to look at any given moment. To find that spot is absurdly easy. You only have to remember where you were looking at the time the scene was made. Um, <laughs> that's a really straightforward basic rule and it makes sense. Um, he says, you can't go around to theaters handing out cards saying it, was, it isn't my fault. You go on to the next one. <laughs> I love the idea you go on to the next one. And, and what movies is he talking about? You know, He's gotta be talking about- The later was- stuff, right? he was very dissatisfied with the two Mitchell Leeson adaptations. That's oh, what caused yep. him That's, you're right. to be willing to do great McGinty. I think he did, he took the directing or he sold the script for $1 with the idea that he could direct it. Right. And it's because he was really apparently on uh, remember the night. It was like a full half of the dialogue was cut out of it, oh, something wow. like that. And he just, he came out of that screening like they fucking ruined my movie, you know? Yeah, you're totally right that that's where that quote comes from, I think, in that experience. Yeah. Uh, I did not think that a good movie was the equivalent of a good stage play any more than I thought an automobile ride was as, as exhilarating as a drive behind a spirited horse, nor a trip by steam as soul satisfying as a voyage by sail. Yeah. A lot of stuff happening there. I like that. Interesting. And that explains all of the things he lost money on too. He lost money on the horses. He lost <laughs> money on the ship engines. He lost money on all that. He invested. That was also part of why he burned out so quickly is he made all these in terrible investments. He invested in a very popular restaurant that was like hugely popular for several years, but was just losing money hand over fist, even as it was popular. He invested in, in an engine company. And then he, uh, I don't know if he invested in horses, but that's why he got fired off of the um, Howard Hughes movie because he was taking horseback riding every day and the people who were charging him for it, he thought it was complimentary. They were charging him like $500 a day. And Howard Hughes was like, what is this fucking asshole doing running up all this horseback riding money? <laughs> oh and he got fired off of the, off of the film, <laughs> the Howard Hughes film. I still love that his mom dated Aleister Crowley, right? Is that his mom? His mom gave Isadora Duncan the scarf she was killed by because, you know, Isadora Duncan got her scarf caught in the spokes of a car and choked to death. And his mom gave Isadora Duncan the scarf. They were they were super pals. Insane. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. I got the, the 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 11 rules. It was easier to find than I thought. Number one, a pretty girl is better than an ugly one. Okay. Two. A leg is better than an arm. Three, that's very Boonwellian. Three, <laughs> a bedroom is better than a living room. Four, an arrival is better than a departure. Five, a birth is better than a death. 
Six, a chase is better than a chat. Seven, a dog is better than a landscape. I love that one. That's great. Eight, a kitten is better than a dog. (laughs) Nine, a baby is better than a kitten. Ten, a kiss is better than a baby. And eleven, a pratfall is better than anything. Oh, he must have written that early because yes, obviously, definitely. you know, Lady Eve rules he doesn't like. So that's and we, we should it's mention funny that, that Pratt, a birth... and Lady Eve are all amazing. It's They're also it's also funny with Miracle at Morgan's Creek, a birth is better than a death. Well, you know, taking that to heart with that one. <laughs> <laughs> the whole movie premise. That's great. A lot of birth. A lot of birth in that movie. Another great Demarest performance. Just a oh, wow. love William Demarest so much. John, what was your history with Sturgis? I feel like Sturgis was one of the things that when we first met, we were both like Sturgis fans. And that's how we became friends in college. I feel like he was one of those filmmakers. The first time I sought him out was that uh, I read an Entertainment Weekly issue that that was the 50 best directors of all time. And the only one I hadn't heard of was Preston Sturgis. And the movie that they suggested watching was uh, was two, Sullivan's Travels and Palm Beach Story. So I went and I found those movies. Interesting. Nice. For a while, yeah, for a while it seemed like, you know, I knew Billy Wilder and I knew a lot of the other, you know, screwball directors and, and stars and everything. But for some reason, Sturgis just never came up in anything that I made chats that I had about movies or any books that I read about them until that magazine. So, yeah, that's how I found out about it in high school. Excellent. It's funny when I was younger, I was not really into golden age of Hollywood stuff like Hollywood in thirties and forties. And, but Preston Sturges was one of my absolute favorites. It's weird. I don't know how it ended up being that way. Obviously now I can't, I just like live and breathe the, you know, Arthur Freed MGM musicals. So it's weird to remember a time when that was not like my main interest, even more than, you know, similar experience too. Cause I, Loved the Marx Brothers very, very early. Like, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure a friend of my dad showed that stuff to me when I was like 10 years old. Basically, I started watching them. So I kind of had this idea that like nothing is better than the Marx Brothers. So why bother hunting out the other <laughs> like golden age Hollywood comedies? And they'll just like Sturgis like, oh, this is why. I should have them out. And then and then you watched Coconuts and you were like, oh, everything's better than the Marx Brothers. <laughs> No, uh, it's funny that you mentioned uh, your your dad. This is a movie that I was watching this. I've always wanted to share these movies with my son, but he's 11. I don't, it's a weird thing where it's like, I don't know what the right age is. They seem like they would be great for kids, but they're actually sophisticated adult films in a lot of ways. A lot of the humor, especially in this one in Sullivan's Travels are just not, going to be in any way funny for a kid you know a a lot of this i just don't think would be an interest and combined with black and white where even a fairly adventurous viewer like my son you still got to convince them to watch every single black and white movie that you convince them to watch it's always a a hurdle you've got to get it over but then it's like you know what's the right age am i going to sit him down when he's like 16 and be like now is the lady eve time that feels feels strange also it's it's sort of movie uh, movies that i felt like finding a difficult moment to try and share them with him yeah no it is tough because you know it sounds like we all kind of came to him on our own and i don't want to say sturgis is a guy that you can only come to you're on your own but there is something really rewarding about it because he is so good and once you see one and you're like well that was amazing and you think about your experience with other directors where you've seen i mean yeah there are directors who have great runs but 
typically my experience is you'll see a good one, maybe two good ones, but then you'll see something that you're like, okay, well, that was okay. That wasn't the best, but it was, I still see the goodness in that. But with Sturges, I feel like if you hit those six, you can just be like, what is happening here? This is yeah. insane how good these are. And, and especially again, if they come to you through that sort of discovery, it's, it's like waves, just tidal waves washing over you. You can't believe there's another one coming that can be as big or as good as the last one uh, or drown you as much. I don't know. It's a bad <laughs> metaphor for, for what this is, but, but yeah, I just, he's definitely a guy that I, I think rewards. Uh, I've certainly recommended the movies to others and I've definitely had people say they like them, but it seems like the people I know that love him the most found him on their own somehow. Yes. And people I remember in college, I would specifically tell my friends to watch Preston Sturges that he was just the funniest. And there was a huge amount of resistance to it. I don't know if they would actually watch the movies or not, but there was just like, I'm not watching that kind of thing. And I don't, and I don't really know why that was. Cause I specifically remember one friend coming back to me later after he'd been assigned them and in graduate school and being like, they're fucking amazing. I thought they were like old people stuff. And I was like, I told you, you goddamn moron. <laughs> and, uh, and they, they are, it is interesting. I do feel like there is something about him that even as celebrated as he is, he's somehow outside of the canon, like the way John's talking about where you can have, he's on the list of 50 greatest filmmakers of all time and people won't have heard of him. He's not Billy Wilder in stature, except that he is Billy Wilder in stature. You know, he's he's not Coppola in stature, except that he is Coppola in stature. It's a very <laughs> funny position he occupies where anyone who would be in a position to seriously rate him, I think would rate him correctly, but somehow he doesn't end up riding in that same, to put it back to wave metaphors, he's not riding on that same wave with the rest of them, he somehow like left back on the shore. But you know, uh, the, the, the phrase il maestro de colore sano, which is uh, the phrase that they used for Dante, which means the master of those who know, right? So like, this is like Preston Sturges when I think uh, about him, is that it's a funny position that he occupies. It's so strange, you know, I, it's, and it's also sometimes hard to get a, a real foothold with what, what, are, what do people know about? What do they not know about? You know, yeah. with social media, you can get a sense sometimes. Letterboxd, you can get a sense of what people have watched and stuff. But it's really hard to know. But I agree with you. It, it's weird that he's not as celebrated as, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of a classic director that's, that like is sort of like him, like Wilder, obviously. Or Howard Hawks or somebody like Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. No, exactly. That's a good example, I think. Yeah. I mean, they, Hawks did comedies too. And and actually, I think some of the Hawks, Ball of Fire is, uh, you know, a, another great um, performance from Stanwyck, a great comedic yeah. performance, very similar to Eve in a lot of ways. Um, and that movie is, that's one of the funniest, and that's a Wilder in bracket script, I think, tying back, that back. But anyway, Point being is, yeah, Howard Hawks maybe gets some credit. And why does Sturges, even though he's got all these movies in the Criterion Collection, still doesn't seem, and as great as they are, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think of, I, now that I think about it, people I know who have come to Sturges late in their life have that reaction of, why didn't I know about this guy? You know, it's like everyone agrees that, you know, the canonical directors are Hitchcock and they're Hawks and they're Ford. But yeah, Sturges doesn't really have that reputation it is sort of a niche club when you think about it you know it's, he's, it is he's a little isolating to find that 
the, that the filmography. I'd say that I feel like people who know about him, like the, the general knowledge of him is like on the level with like a Leo McCary or a Mitchell Leeson. <laughs> but anybody who knows him knows he's better than those guys, you yeah. know, at the same time. So it's a funny, it's, it is funny in that way that for some reason he doesn't have an iconic name even though his films are every bit as good and anybody who would be in a position to judge them, I think would agree on that. I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who knows cinema. If you were like Lady Eve is as good as anything Billy Wilder ever did, they wouldn't be like, what? They'd be like, that is true. That's a true statement. You well, know? we'll think too about how much people think of those movies, even you know, when someone knows who Leo McCary is or Mitchell Lyson is, they think of it as like a Cary Grant movie or a Catherine Hepburn movie. Yeah. Not as, you know, a Mitchell Lyson movie. But when you think about Preston Sturgis movies, you think that's a Preston Sturgis movie, even with big stars starring in them. You just think, you don't think of that as being a Henry Fonda film. It's a Preston Sturgis film. Yeah. Well, it's, it's all about all the things we're talking about. The dialogue, the way that he populates it with those character actors, that becomes the landscape of the movie. And they all have that. And they all have character actors popping up and doing something goddamn hilarious. And great running gag. I mean, he's, yeah, he just really creates, you know, if you want to make an auteurist case, it's just like he creates this unique kind of universe uh, that's stylized in some ways, at least in terms of maybe how people talk, but, and the way that people crop up, the way people's faces look, he has, he has a great eye for faces in these character actors and stuff. Um, that, yeah, he just really distinctifies himself in a, in a way that once you've seen one, you just can't forget it and, and you keep coming back to them. And, and like you said, you guys are pulling out lines that I totally missed. And I love that. I love that. It's really like, there's almost not a single inconsequential line in the film. And I think yeah. that you could make that case for a few movies, but I think that almost every movie has some bit of, you know, shoe leather to it. And I feel like he's like crafting literally every single word. There's so many great lines that you forget ones that are better than, any lines in rival movies, you know? right? Yeah, amazing. It's funny though, John, when you mention like um, people think of it as a Cary Grant movie or that. I think that another weird thing about Preston Sturges is he worked with actors that, if you know what you're talking about, like Joel McRae, Eddie Bracken, Dick Powell, those are big famous stars from that era. But those people have not hung around the way. Cary Grant and Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck have. Even Veronica Lake has not really hung around in that way. It's really Lady Eve is the one that has those two enduring stars to them, let alone like the, the actors from Great McGinty and Unfaithfully Yours that are, are even by standards of the time, not particularly big. Like, I think that everybody knows who Cary Grant is. Everybody knows who Jimmy Stewart is. You know, everybody knows Spencer Tracy even still. I think that Eddie Bracken is and Betty Hutton are stepped down from that somehow in terms of, of how well-known they are. And maybe that's part of where it comes from that he didn't have that um, consistently the really enduring stars in that way. Even that some the way that somebody like Frank Tashlin did that had stars that that somehow lasted longer, even when they're, they're definitely more gimmicky, like Jane Mansfield, she's still somehow more iconic now than Eddie Bracken is, you know? Mm. And I think that that's probably has to be a factor in it as well, because it's not like, oh, he directed a bunch of Cary Grant movies that are great, 
it's what you guys are saying. He directed a bunch of Preston Sturges movies and that's really <laughs> what he did. And, and the actors uh, don't, don't take that away from him, except in the case of Lady Eve, where I think that Barbara Stanwyck really is, uh, take center stage here. I really think even above his writing and everything he's doing, she's, she's a step above that with this movie. And I think that's why it's the best one too. I think that she gives the best performance in any of his films. And you think it's the best, best one too, Brian? I think so. Yeah. For Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. It's great. But I do love Christmas in July. too. No, I, I, like I said, (laughs) go watch that. And, and that was one that even snuck up on me the first time I liked it. And then subsequent viewings, it gets, it gets its hooks in me even more. It's just, it's interesting because I loved Palm Beach Story, Sullivan's Travels, and Lady Eve, and all of the others, the first time I watched them, I had a reaction of, eh, it's not as good, and there's some piece of it that I don't like, you know, at the at the time. Um, now, when I watch them, they're all great. I really like all of all of the, the good ones. Um, and I think we all agree the, the bad ones are the great moments, Sin of Harold Diddlebach, and then the two uh, you know, beautiful blonde from Bashful Bend and the French They Are Funny Race, which I've never actually seen. And maybe it's secretly good. John, have uh, you seen that one? I don't have a good feeling about it, but I haven't seen <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I have. I mean, it's it's funny that I forgot that Unfaithfully Yours was not part of this, that it was broken up by the terrible um, uh, the Harold Lloyd movie. The Harold Lloyd movie. Um, because I, I think I think that one is phenomenal. I think yeah. that, that one is, you know, belongs with this group. Certainly, it's one of his best screenplays. Um, so, but yeah, one of his most imaginative, unfaithfully yours, I think, is phenomenally good. But it's yeah. very different than the others. It, it really true, it is. is it is different in tone and feeling. And it's yeah, a little bit more mean spirited than the others, and darker than even the darkest points of some of the others. And that's fine. Um, but yeah, I could see how the Rex Harrison character could really put some people off. I mean, it's an interesting premise. For sure, but a very dark premise. For sure, oh, sure, absolutely, well. it's true. It's and true. speaking it of Boonwell, it reminds me of Criminal Life of Archibaldo de la Cruz. Oh yeah, a lot of course. In the same, <laughs> yeah. the same sort of idea. Rehearsal to murder your wife movies, <laughs> <laughs> my favorite subgenre. Um, any last thoughts on the Lady Eve uh, guys? What are, what are we thinking? That it's the greatest movie of all time? Is that where we're coming? Is I mean, that where we're landing on this? I, it sounds, it, it just sounds like there's a lot of hyperbole here, but yeah, I mean, it really is one of the great comedies of the classic Hollywood era. And I would argue one of the great comedies, period. Like it's just really, the more we talk about it again, more, the more you guys bring up those lines that didn't always register for me, the more I'm like, everything is in place here. It's just yeah, really pretty perfect. Whenever it's anybody asks me, like, what are the, Whenever somebody doesn't ask me what are the three funniest movies ever uh, made, I typically say Lady Eve, Life of Brian, Top Secret. <laughs> really? Oh, I thought you were going to put Duck Soup in there. I'm really surprised you didn't. Oh, Duck Soup's I... not probably not even in my top three Marx Brothers, honestly. Oh, really? Yeah. What are, before we go, what are your top three Marx four. Brothers? I love um, At Horse the Races. Horse oh. Feathers, absolutely. Okay. You, you do love Blackface. <laughs> that that part's unfortunate but you know the the, uh, the, the um the the breeder's guide code book bit in date the races one of my favorite bits amazing Such amazing a bit. i could do a line for line i love it it's <laughs> hilarious and i'm probably lying i think duck soup's maybe number three but okay. uh there's a great uh, there's a great is great too there's a great horse racing joke in lady eve which is how did the horse come in fifth were there only five horses Literally five horses that's what i get for betting on a nag named after you 
just so good always everything and that, and that line too is just like it's setting up like another plot you know development that's going to happen it's like a throwaway line but it's brilliant yeah it's so no, good i would no say with words with lady eve i you know i don't know if it's the greatest movie ever made or whatever i do know that it's for me one of my favorite movies ever made and i think it is on that short list of like 50 100 or so films that if somebody told you it's their favorite movie or the greatest movie ever made you know it, it, there's no reason to object you know what i mean it's like when somebody tells you you know I think Daniel Stern's Bushwhacked is the greatest movie ever made, you know, where you're sort of like caught off guard and like, well, that's a, that's a hell of a thought you had there or so, you know, some <laughs> bit of, of ridiculousness that, you know, kind of, right, when know. somebody says that the death ship is uh, the best Balut movie, <laughs> who would say that? That's uh that's obviously a Looney Tunes position. <laughs> no, but you hear that all the time where people will pick, like, I knew, a, I knew a girl whose favorite movie was the cotton club. Right. And it's sort of like, huh. You know, yeah. I, I it really think... does make you tip your head to one side. It's, it's oh, hard. I almost imper imperceptibly just did it without even thinking. Yeah. Like, like how do you arrive movie? at that? Lady Eve is, is on the list of when somebody, you know what the greatest movie ever made is the Godfather, you know, and you're like, okay, yeah, that's, I understand this position and why you've taken it. Lady Eve is, is definitely on that or double indemnity. If somebody says that's the greatest movie ever made, I think that, that, uh, that Lady Eve definitely is in that category of, you know, of maybe a hundred films that I think are a very reasonable pick for the greatest movie ever made. Agreed. 100%. And I may be misremembering, but Bill Hader did like his, I want to say it was, as much as 200 funniest movies ever. And I feel like he had some Sturges on there, but Lady Eve wasn't on there. And I was scandalized. I may be misremembering. I'm going to go like, look that up How do you later, have 200 cause... chances? How do you have 200 chances and don't say the Lady Eve? That's for crazy. the funniest movies of all That's time. That's crazy town. I'm going to feel bad if I'm wrong, if I'm misremembering this. But I'm going to look it up. If you there, are... was something, there was one thing on it that was like, I can't believe he didn't say this. And I feel like it was Lady Eve. It's, it's, it's funny. This is also reminding me of when I was in college, I had a few friends who were like, the big Lebowski is the funniest movie ever made. And I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, what movie's funnier? I was like, Lady Eve. And so they like spite watched it like that day with me to just like prove it wasn't funnier than the big Lebowski. We all sat around and watched Lady Eve with like this deeply hostile audience that didn't want it to be funnier than the big Lebowski and who was in unanimous agreement when it was over that it was not funnier than the big Lebowski. And that was like one of my, my <laughs> Preston Sturges viewing experiences. I and still love that you got them to sit down and do it. Even if they didn't like it, that they were like, well, we'll try it. Anyway. We got, we got to see this fucking funny movie. That's funnier than the big Lebowski. Big Lebowski's incredibly funny movie. I should have, sure. I should have known that that that's uh, setting myself up for failure. And I, I and I, I agree with them. If somebody says they think Big Lebowski's funniest movie ever made, I think that's a legitimate position too. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's no, uh, it's no uh, diplomaniacs, but it's pretty good. <laughs> and I didn't find a place in this episode to bring up the book he's reading, Are Snakes Necessary? That also correct. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Brian, oh, thank you so much, man, for uh, taking the time to talk about this movie. I love talking movies with you. It's just great. Yeah, to have man, you, you got to come on more. And... I, I, I will try to do that. I love talking movies with you guys. It's always invigorating and always I, you guys always bring out things 
that I didn't even realize I was thinking about. And you always bring out things that I never thought about with your observations. And I always appreciate that. So thank you so much for having me back on. Do you get, do you have any plugs? You have your great, just the discs, uh, uh, physical media review podcast. You do pure cinema podcast, which we were the home to for a stretch. We were very proud of being associated with you guys there. We, we loved having you guys as the home there. I, I, that's a big part of the evolution of the show before the new Beverly, it was yeah. the pink smoke presents. And I, I love that. And, and people can go back and hear that as part of the history of the show. And I think that that makes me proud because I love you guys. I love what the yeah. pink smoke represents and that it was a part of our show. Cause we are very aligned. And I, when I talk to you guys, it always feels of a piece with talking yeah. to Elric and you know, we're very like-minded people and in, in cinema. And I love that. So, um, but yeah, no, just, uh, I guess I'll plug the latest pure cinema. I don't know when this is coming out, but the one that we did is an episode called director's missing pieces, which is just our, you know, cockeyed way of saying, you know, blind spots, movies from directors we like that we haven't watched. Yeah. And such a uh, great idea. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an obvious thing, but ultimately we, and I'm going to spoil it here. We did a few more of these that are coming in later months. Yeah. We've gotten some really nice feedback on this one. And I made, some really fun discoveries, including one I'm not going to spoil, but it's it's a John Gillerman film oh. that just knocked me out, just absolutely knocked me out, and I can't recommend it enough. So if you hear the episode, you know which one I'm talking about. But um, we, that's the latest one, and we really had fun with it. So awesome! There is one thing that John and I just together, Pink Smoke, officially on the record in response to listening to one of your episodes of the best last movies. Oh. John and I absolutely agree that Penn and Teller get killed by Arthur Penn is the best last movie any director ever made and that it's a fucking masterpiece. So on the record. Nice. I love that. I love that. That was also a really fun show. I mean, guess guess notwithstanding, um, it was just a fun exercise to go through. I do recommend people check out last films because there's a lot of stuff that I still haven't seen, you know, like uh, Sturgis' last film. And maybe I'll be disappointed. I don't know. But I still feel like it's worth seeing those endpoints, you know, regardless of how they come out. Absolutely. Definitely had like a how would Funny Farm ever get mentioned on the show? You guys were doing like <laughs> Chevy Chase's filmography, full filmography, or something. Like that. I love that a bunch of people rushed out and watched it uh, probably yeah. after the episode, and, and that's delightful. How could they to resist. Me. Totally delightful. You know? uh, oh my god! Well, that show obviously uh, Pearson was fucking fantastic. You're getting great guests on it, and everybody should keep listening to it. And even without the guests, you and Elric are top of the game in podcasting if you ask too kind and i think i think a lot of people would agree with that um very very sweet of you come on whenever you want and and we'll talk we'll talk more more movies thanks again man for coming on thank you thanks for listening everybody have a great night